Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, I'm Reza Aslan. And I'm Rain Wilson. And I am never sad. Liar. Of course I am. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Pancake. So, Rain, uh, people tell me that you're known for being funny. I myself wouldn't know. I've never actually seen you in anything. Um, Do you think that there's anything to this whole idea that you hear about all the time about sort of, you know, the sad clown or the tears of a clown? You know, I'll say that I have a lot of friends that are comedic actors, improv actors, stand-up comics. And for so many of them, comedy, laughter, being funny meant... Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba survival um a lot of twisted upbringings a lot of addiction a lot of of family trauma a lot of just not fitting in and it wasn't just like funny like oh i'm just gonna tell some jokes with my friends because it's fun it's like i need to be funny to transform my pain into some kind of survival mechanism so it's literally like the way that an animal on a nature show grow oh look at this six you know toed lizard that needed its sixth toe so it wouldn't fall off of this one species of tree it was a survival mechanism that kind of comedy came out of the same way so of course there's going to be sadness around that when you're there's a kind of a desperation around the funny i think there's something deeper going on here there's a there's this thing that psychologists talk about when they they say that in a way you can't experience happiness without sadness, Mm -hmm. right? That you need sadness as a kind of comparative measure so that you can experience happiness. And so that that link between comedy and sadness, between happiness and sadness, it's it's deeper than just simply one makes you forget the other. But comedy also explores reality. Mm. You know, it pulls back the curtains on the human condition. And a big part of the human condition is is sadness. You know, yeah. we're we're alone and we're separate from others and we have pain and we recognize the pain in others. It's a part of it's a part of being alive. And there are some comedians who do this really well, right? Like if you were if you were watching somebody on stage talk about their dead wife, you know, you would just be like, what the fuck is happening? I don't even know, you know, how to even process this story about this guy talking about losing his wife. I I feel terrible. Everybody feels terrible. But if he went up there and Mm -hmm. talked about his dead wife by telling jokes, 
mm-hmm. all of a sudden, I can absorb his sadness by laughing at it. Right? How many times have you been to a funeral in which you know people are up there eulogizing the dead, and it's just like you know hilarious, and everybody's laughing and having a good time? It's almost like comedy becomes a vehicle. Yep. To experience sadness in a safe way. So fortunately, we've got a comedian here, and I'm not talking about me. I'm not really a comedian. I'm just a weird actor. But Michael Ian Black is a comedian, actor, author. He's written eight children's books, among some adult books as well, including one entitled, I'm Sad. Yeah, and we wanted to talk to Michael because we really wanted to dig deep into this whole thing about what exactly is so funny about sadness? Like, why are they why are they so intricately linked together? And uh, he seems like the perfect person for this and conversation. And he's uh, kind of made a career and uh, yeah. has a specialty around introducing and exploring these tough topics for kids in his books, including sadness. So let us <clears throat> welcome to the microphone, direct from Connecticut, Mr. Michael Ian Black. He better be funny. Why did you write a book about sadness for kids? Uh, Because I had written a book called I'm Bored uh, for Kids, which was uh, a a response to my own children complaining of their own boredom and (laughs) uh, feeling like there was an opportunity to write something sort of funny about that. Um, And so I, I wrote that book and... It has these three characters in it, a little girl, a potato, and a flamingo. And I, and I really wanted to do something with those characters again. And so I thought, well, what could that be? What could a sequel to I'm Bored be? And it seems obvious in retrospect that you would just examine other sort of uncommonly examined emotions in children's literature, but it took me about it took me maybe four years to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> and and what's the and what's the third in the trilogy? I'm mm-hmm. I'm worried. I'm, I'm worried. worried. Oh. You know, there's a lot of psychological research uh that shows that sadness is really necessary to feel happiness. Mm-hmm. That I would think you can't really experience happiness without the sadness. So, um, are we in a culture that's trying to erase sadness and trying to erase boredom? Um, and in so doing, is that one of the reasons that we're less happy and less fulfilled? Well, I do think, and I'm you know I'm talking out my butt um, that the charge against my generation, your generation of parenting, is that we are not only these helicopter parents who are sort of constantly hovering, but also what's the, what's the word bulldozer parents or something, snowplow parents who are sort of trying to shove obstacles aside mm-hmm. for our kids to sort of smooth the path for them. I think there's some merit in that charge. I certainly see uh, tendencies sometimes in myself and in my wife to try to make things always better for my kids. And I just instinctively... Uh, recoil from that instinct. Part of me wants to do it. And part of me is like, no, they have to experience these things. And although we may have devices, cell phones to throw in their laps when they're bored, uh, or we may have distractions for them when they are sad, or, uh, or we may tell them fables when they are worried. I think kids have pretty sharp bullshit detectors 
and know when they're being lied to and know when um, when a balm is being applied that isn't going to solve the problem. You said something earlier about um, just even helping kids to recognize, you know, sadness and boredom, which is something that I hear a lot from parenting coaches that I've uh, How many parenting to? coaches do you talk to? Well, I mean, do you talk to a lot of parenting coaches? <laughs> well, it's a long, it's a, I've never it's met, a long I've never met story. One. It's, a, it's a very, very long story, <laughs> and it has to do with the fact that I live uh, in Los Angeles, and that oh. my four-year-old went to a this very, very progressive, almost cult-like uh, preschool, Sounds and like a it nightmare. came with mandatory parent training. And one of the things that they talk a lot about is the inability of a kid to be able to properly label um, an emotion. So we do have uh, a lot of data, scientific data, that shows that, for for instance, many kids have a difficult time differentiating between a sad face and a mad face. They don't know mm. what's the difference between the two. We also ha- have a lot of data showing that tantrums are rooted in sadness. And so I remember this parenting coach told us, watch your kid, watch your kid. And the, and, and the next time that they throw a tantrum, notice how when the tantrum is over, it is always followed by tears and sadness. And we watched, and it's true. That's amazing. I have never tantrums thought about that Tantrums always before. end. No matter what the tantrum's about, yeah. no matter how angry and violent the tantrum is, it always ends with sadness and tears. So it's unprocessed sadness. I don't it's know how to be yeah. sad. So which is why, like, this idea that a lot of parents do, which is, well, let them work it out, or I'm going to separate myself from you. Like, you would never do that to a sad kid. Yeah. So what are you supposed to do, though? The opposite. Sit there. Let it happen. Watch it happen. Take part in it. Wait until it's over. Wait till the tears come. Wrap them in your arms and say it's okay. Oh, like what you would do if the if the kid was sad. Yeah, they better not try that at the cheesecake factory when we go there. I'm telling you that right now. <laughs> no cheesecake. They're not gonna. No, oh, they're not ruining my Saturdays at the cheesecake factory. <laughs> no, no way, no hell. No they are no. So how. <laughs> I, I guess all of this is to say that so much of dealing with ki- uh, a small kid's emotions. Begins with just simply helping them label it first. Like you're mm. you're worried. That's what that's what's happening right now. You're sad. That's what's happening right now. Thinking about the sadness and and, and loneliness, boredom, anxiety. W- w- do you have a special insight as a as a as a man of comedy, as a sad clown, into these emotions? I think what comedians have that maybe other people have less of is an ability to uh, confront those feelings. I don't think we feel them any more acutely than anybody else. I don't think we feel them with any more frequency than anybody else, but I think we're maybe more willing to confront them and and to confront them in a constructive way. Can you uh, expand on that a little bit? Well, so much of what comedy is comedy at root is rebellion it is about finding incongruity in a situation and exploiting it so this is exactly why uh, very generally speaking and very specifically speaking conservatives as a as a sort of political leaning aren't funny 
It's because conservation, the conser- con- being a conservative, is about preserving the status quo. It's about actually embracing the congruous and saying, I like this thing and am fighting to preserve this wow, I'd, thing. Wow, I'd never thought about that before. That's that's amazing. It's a brilliant insight on my part. No, it is. Keep going. Um, and so when you find yourself bumping up against something, you have an emotional reaction to something, whatever it is. Um, it could be observational, like Jerry Seinfeld. You know, why do they call them grape nuts? They're not grapes and they're not nuts. <laughs> when you bump into... <laughs> I wish I could take credit for it. The first time Rain heard it. I wish I could take credit for it. Oh, no. Also, no. what's the, Funny, what's the deal with no, those little not. pillows on airplanes? <laughs> oh, oh, Has anyone ever asked that? Stop us right now. <laughs> anyway, okay. Stop, we're trying to have a serious podcast. So once podcast. you bump into that thing, <laughs> once you bump into that thing that you're having some sort of response to, that's an opportunity for comedy. Now, that's a surface one. As you get deeper and you and you bump into your own sort of emotional problems and your own emotional incongruity, you recognize, or good comedians, I hope, recognize that that is um, those are opportunities for you to express something. And the way comedians express these things is through comedy, through jokes. So, it, so you, if you're a musician, it's the same thing. If you're a writer, it's the same thing. You know, you, you you're finding these moments of incongruity and and looking for ways to resolve. If you're thinking about breaking some bad habits this year, start with this one, overpaying for your prescriptions. To do that, get in the good habit of always checking GoodRx to help find the best price for your prescription medications. I used to just visit one pharmacy, the one closest to me over here, not knowing that prescription prices can vary between pharmacies by as much as a hundred bucks. Turns out I was paying way too much for my prescriptions. Now, I always use GoodRx to instantly find discounts and compare prices at all the pharmacies in my neighborhood. Look, even if you're like me and you have great insurance, you should still check GoodRx because it can often beat your copay. You can use their site or the GoodRx app, which you can download for free. GoodRx is free. It's easy to use. And you could instantly save up to sometimes 80%. Plus, it's accepted at over 70,000 pharmacies nationwide, like CVS, Kroger, Walgreens, Rite Aid, Vons, Walmart, all those things. You know, I really had no idea before I found out about GoodRx the fact that the prescription prices vary so much. For simple, smart savings on your prescription, check GoodRx. Go to GoodRx.com slash milkshake. That is GoodRx.com slash milkshake. GoodRx.com slash milkshake. GoodRx is not insurance, but can be used instead of insurance. In 2021, GoodRx users saved an average of 79% on retail prescription prices, folks. Did you know that only 9% of plastic actually gets recycled, Reza? Ugh. No matter how much plastic we put in our recycling bin. That is so depressing. It is really depressing. That is so depressing. But there is a company, Grove Collaborative, They believe it's time to ditch single-use plastics for good. Grove carries hundreds of products aimed at replacing single-use plastics across your home and personal care routine. And by 2025, Grove will be 100% plastic-free. Like Grove Co.'s concentrated cleaners and refillable glass bottles, they're friendlier to the planet and twice as effective as the leading natural brands. Switch to sustainable products for every room in your home, From laundry care to hand soaps and more, Grove Co. 
has you covered. Safe formulas, refillable packaging that never compromises on performance. I mean, look, I have uh, three bathrooms and four kids. Do you know how many just like hand pump soap bottles we go through in a week? How many shampoo bottles we go through in a week? That's like enough plastic to cover a small island, essentially. And so we totally take advantage of Grove. We get these gigantic things. We fill all the old uh, bottles of shampoo and all the old bottles of, of hand soap over and over and over again instead of just like tossing the plastic in the recycling bin and then like praying that it actually gets recycled. So join the over 2 million households that are already shopping sustainably at Grove like we are. All you got to do is go to grove.com slash milkshake today to get a free gift set worth up to $50 with your first order. Plus, shipping is fast and free. Get started right now at grove.com slash milkshake. That's grove.com slash milkshake. Help save the world, folks. But I, I, that's that's a fascinating answer, and uh, I truly have gleaned a lot from it. But I will say that I disagree because my silk. I know I get to. It's my podcast. Um, You're just going to throw Reza under the bus, like yeah, that. yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm just his handsome sidekick. Yeah, he's he's my better looking, smarter. I'm Robin. So, you know, I had a you know a, a disassociated father who was not present. My mom left when I was two. I had, uh, so I was literally like motherless between two and four or so, like not held. And so it's created in me after years of therapy, I see like this, you know, ungainly, awkward uh, little child who thought uh, he was, he just could never fit in in any way, shape or form. And then I found like, oh, I could do weird things with my body and I could make funny faces and funny sounds or I could, you know, ape people and I could um, I could make people laugh. And then all of a sudden I found a belonging. So there was, through me, a kind of like, I was able to transform the kind of perverse, anxious pain of my childhood into making that whole big bundle of money on the office. Yeah, well, you just described. You've just described what I was saying. Well, you, the, the, no, no, the no. Problem, the, but the I'm bump saying you were the insight was, I have is as a as a sad clown is because of my suffering being transformed into connection. My disconnection, yeah. my alienation, being transformed into connection. Sure, that's the positive. That is the the hoped for positive outcome of any of these expressions. What Rain is saying brings up this this counterpoint. In, in, in another interesting way, because, and you and you said yourself that oh, it's the same thing that a, a musician does, or a songwriter does, or an, an actor does, but not really, because a musician feels the sadness and then expresses sadness in a song that makes us all sad. Yeah, thank you, Eddie Vedder. Like, yeah. I'm, I feel pain, <laughs> yeah. and, and I'm writing about that pain. Same with an I actor. Feel. An actor, you know taps into that sadness and then expresses sadness and then gives the emotion of sadness. But a comedian does the opposite. A comedian taps into that sadness, turns it into jokes and makes people happy. So that's, yeah. I guess, if the question that we're asking is what's so funny about sadness, which I feel like that is the that's question. That's pretty good. Asking, yeah. You're what's so funny about sadness? Thank you. Um, that, what is it then? What is it about? And why is it? especially Michael, 
that so many comedians, maybe it's a stereotype, but so many comedians have this sort of gigantic well of sadness, you know, that that they are famous for. I don't think it's a stereotype. I do think that's true. But I maintain that as sad as comedians may be, they are no sadder than the general population. We are only perhaps more aware of our own sadness. We are only maybe more tapped into it. I think that wellspring of sadness that you're talking about is ever present. I think it's a current that runs through the entire human population. Comedians are are maybe just uniquely wired to make that transformation that you just described of turning that that sort of alchemical uh, spinning straw into gold. Um, finding that sadness and 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 finding a take on it that people will uh, recognize and respond to with laughter. So it is a distinct art form, of course, that turning sadness into into laughter. That is a that is distinct from turning your own sadness into a sad song or tapping into your own sadness to express the words of somebody else, like an actor might do. But I think at base, foundationally, I think they're the same thing. So what's what was your sad clown? What's Michael Ian Black at age 11? And how has that been transformed into uh, through the work that well, you've done? One of the things that I really had to struggle with uh, as a comedian, as a actor, and as a human is that my response to my own sadness, uh, which I think really sort of descended on me for various reasons around the age of five, six, what I found was I could kind of shut down emotionally and develop this sort of stoic, sarcastic side that people found really funny. I could be really dry and I could say things in a way that would make people laugh that might might have been off-putting or offensive if somebody else had said them. That turned into a whole career for me um, where I could be like the dry guy, but none of it, at least I started to feel like it was a prison. I started to feel like that character that I had created for myself was, even as I was finding professional success with it, with it, it was creating um, boundaries for me as a human that I couldn't deal with because my life wasn't reflecting what my character was doing and vice versa. And I felt like I needed to break out of it. And I also felt like there was a very real chance that that could sort of hurt me professionally, but that I needed to do it just personally. I needed to just, just escape. And, and did you do that? Were you effective in doing that? I did. I mean, I, 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 it started with, um, we're, so I was on these shows called the, the, uh, the VH1, I love the whatever show. I love the 70s. I love the 80s. I love the 90s. And those shows became really popular and they were funny and I was funny on them. But what I was doing was sort of like, that was the height of my period of being like incredibly just like dry, stone-faced. And that was the, that was the period for me where I really started to feel like I was kind of imprisoned. And so to get out of it, I started doing stand-up, which I hadn't done before. And exploring like what it was like to be me as I experienced myself on stage, which was a new thing for me. Mm. And I also started writing. 
Um, and I wrote a memoir called You're Not Doing It Right, which was sort of an attempt to sort of try to break out of some of this stuff. And it was and it was helpful. It was really freeing. Were, were for you me. in a therapeutic process at this time? It no. seems like no, you didn't. You weren't because it seems like something a therapist would would be encouraging you to do. Well, it like, sounds like you're almost doing. Yeah, I was just going to say. Yeah, it sounds like great yeah. therapy advice. But it sounds like you were sort of internally doing it as therapy, right? Working this yeah. stuff out on a stage in the form of jokes. I was doing it all in a very self conscious way, um, or in a conscious way, I should say, and. It has been, for me, like successful to a degree and unsuccessful to a degree because I knew comedically who that other guy was. Mm. But the sort of the person that is me, really me, that's, that has been a much harder nut for me to crack on stage as a comedian. Um, but, it, but for me, it's, it's worth that pursuit because otherwise... I, I, otherwise, I, I worry that I, I would end up as a caricature of myself, and I, I didn't want to do that. This way, I feel like my comedy can grow as I grow, and my comedy can go through the things that I'm going through. Do you think that there is something unique about sadness that allows it to be more effectively communicated if it's in the guise of comedy. Like, I always find that um, when I'm watching a movie or a TV show or, or reading a book or whatever, that what I am witnessing or experiencing is somebody else's sadness. Far from making me also feel sad it makes me uncomfortable and embarrassed and uh, it turns me off or, or, I, or I just like instantly see it as fake um, and uh, uncomfortable, mostly uncomfortable. Other, pe- what, other what, people's sadness makes me uncomfortable. And I think, I'm, what I think is, most people would agree with that. I don't know. I don't know if that's true at all. No? I think I wonder if that is something specific to you and your upbringing. Well, oh, by the way, I don't mean people I love. I mean sort of no, like I know. friends I know what you mean. or whatever. Like if Rain started crying right now, I probably You'd walk out. I'd probably be like, I'm going to go get some coffee. I'll be right back. Wow. Um, <laughs> wow. Well, no, because Rain's a friend and I love him and I'd hug him. But, you oh. know, but, but like if, 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 you know, if our sound engineer started crying, I'd Robert. be like, oh, Robert, oh, dude, I'm just, right. uh, I'm going to go outside for a little bit and let you figure this out. So what you're describing is tension. And comedy is all about creating and releasing tension. That's oh, genius. Okay. That's absolutely right. That's the connection. So a good comedian will take you to an uncomfortable place, whether it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a priest and a rabbi walk into a bar. We sense that there's a tension that could arise from there. And that setup is the tension. The punchline is the release of the tension. So when you have an uncomfortable emotion like sadness, and people do get uncomfortable. I get uncomfortable if I see somebody on the subway weeping or whatever. I don't know what to do. That, that, that is a natural tension. Jokes are the release, are a perfect just sort of valve for releasing that tension. That's what laughter is. Laughter is literally, the, it's, it's, it's a release of tension. Hmm. Is there something also 
yes, I agree that in the communication of sadness, jokes can be a a pretty powerful vehicle because of all the reasons that you said, because they have a way of breaking through the tension that just comes naturally when you're confronted by sadness in in some way. Um, I think I think. You know, there's a there's a comedian that we all know is a friend of ours whose wife died suddenly. And, you know, I didn't know how to respond to him. I mean, he wrote me a, a lovely email and I had no idea what to say except the usual drivel, you know, like, I'm, I'm sorry, sorry for your loss. For your loss. Uh, mm. I wish there was something, I, you know, whatever. And then that comedian did a special on it. And I laughed my ass off through the Why whole thing. Why are you thing. not saying Patton Oswalt? I don't know. Is Am I like, allowed to like <laughs> share somebody else's? I don't know if I'm allowed to do this. Patton Oswalt. We all know this, though. Yeah, it's it's hard. But the point is, is that there was something about seeing the sadness through the vehicle of jokes that allowed me to connect to him in a way that just his sadness didn't. I, I mean, I haven't really thought about this in that in these terms before. He's giving you permission, in a sense, to laugh with him, to recognize this very common experience, the experience of loss. He's also guiding you through it. So he's taking you on the journey with him rather than asking you to sort of walk with him hand in hand, which may be some of that uncomfortability with the email was. Mm. It's like he's reaching out and saying, hey, thank you. This means a lot to me. I, you know, I'm dealing with this, blah, 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 blah. And you don't know how to respond because he, in a sense, he's putting the ball in your court and, and asking you to either guide him or walk with him. In that setting, in the special, he's, he's saying, I've got this. I'm taking you on this journey mm. and I'm going to explain to you what I went through. And because I'm Patton Oswalt, because I'm so good at what I do, you're going to be safe in my hands and you're going to laugh and maybe you'll cry with me a little bit and and we'll go through this together but I'm your guide here mm-hmm. in the moment that would have been impossible in the moment of his grieving in the moment of his immediate mourning that wouldn't have been possible and it wouldn't have been possible or appropriate I think for you to take those reins and be like I got this Patton follow me mm-hmm. do you remember Star Trek and the episode uh Spock's brain where Spock melds with a with a creature, and uh, the, I and, already know the whole thing. And melds into the creature, and the creature has an experience of being in a human body. Well, in this case, a Vulcan body. But and the creature is like so alone. You're so alone. Isn't isn't that part of the sadness? Like it's it's a real part of being alive. It's they call it an existential sadness, mm-hmm. isn't it? Um, we're we are separate we are we are cut off from the unity of being from each other well, now you from, now, now you're getting into theological shit now you're getting into Reza's wheelhouse all right well maybe it's I your mean, wheelhouse too i don't know so i'm i'm tossing well, here's, this one to here's, you all right well i'll answer you with uh i'm going to i'm paraphrasing from memory oh, okay. cuz i'm going to get it wrong but i just wrote a book about boyhood and manhood and and being a being a man and it's a letter to my son. And in it, I talk about losing my own uh, dad and how I recognized something that the poet Eileen Miles wrote about. Eileen wrote uh, a memoir called Afterglow about their dog, Rosie. And it's just this tiny moment where they talk about 
after Rosie gets put to sleep, Eileen is sitting there with Rosie and Eileen talks about how we're here in this little room and outside is the world. And that's what grief and solitude feel like to me, that we experience so much of our lives alone in this room with our dead dog, whatever the dead dog is. And we can't quite get through the walls to let the world know, that what feels like the unconcerned world know, the depth of our own despair. I think that's the kind of aloneness that you're talking about, that existential aloneness. But what I think all the great traditions teach is that those walls are actually illusory, that given the right tools or even just being able to listen well enough, you'll hear both the sadness and the joy that everybody else is experiencing along with you simultaneously, but we have to be able to tune into those things. Comedy, I think, does a good job of being those antennae. Comedy does a good job of saying, of just sort of focusing these common experiences and projecting them out in a way that is enjoyable. Mm. Hey, folks, did you know that 90% of coffee from the grocery store is actually stale? Yes, you heard that right. The coffee you know and you think you love, it needs an upgrade. So instead of rebuying the same old, same old, let Trade Coffee send you something freshly roasted that you're literally guaranteed to love. Trade sells the freshest roasted and ethically sourced beans from America's best independent roasters. They ship free to you as often as you like, whole or ground. Whether you're a coffee nerd or you just want a better daily cup, Trade's real coffee experts taste test over 400 roasts and use technology to match you to your ideal coffee based on your preferences and brewing method. Take the coffee quiz to get started. Trade Coffee guarantees you'll love your first bag or they'll replace it for free. The way it works is you go on their website and you take like this coffee personality test. Wow. You know, and it's like, well, when do you like to drink coffee? How often do you drink it? Mm-hmm. What kinds of coffee do you like? Do you get it at a store? You know, do you like to grind your own coffee? How do you make the coffee? Do you use a French press? It's kind of fun to sort of learn about your coffee taste. And then this is the cool part. Once they know like your coffee personality, yeah. they find coffee from these like roasters all over the country, you know, like that one roaster in Seattle or that one great place in Baltimore. And they match you with that coffee and then they just send it to you in the mail. It's it's actually a really cool idea. So it's and, like a coffee know, uh, Tinder. It's coffee Tinder. That's what it is, folks. We're going to TM that. For our listeners, right now, Trade Coffee is offering a total of $20 off your first three bags when you go to drinktrade.com slash milkshake. To get started, take their quiz at drinktrade.com slash milkshake and start your journey to your perfect cup. That's drinktrade.com slash milkshake for $20 off your first three bags. Take the quiz. But it turns out everything you know about probiotics may be wrong, Reza. I knew probiotic tortilla chips sounded way too good to be true, folks. But good news, Seed's Daily Symbiotic is the real deal. Listen, not all probiotics are created equal, okay? What is a Daily Symbiotic? Well, it is a broad-spectrum, two-in-one probiotic 
plus prebiotic, a proprietary formulation of 24 distinct probiotic strains in scientifically studied dosages. Proprietary engineered two-in-one capsule that protects probiotics through digestion to ensure delivery to the colon. Now, if you've taken a probiotic before and never felt a difference, it's likely because the good bacteria wasn't surviving your GI tract. This makes sense. It's common sense, Reza. Mm -hmm. Seed is designed differently, and that's why it works. It goes right to where the poop is manufactured. So what does the daily symbiotic do for you? It supports benefits in and beyond the gut. Yes, seed will support ease of bloating, healthy regularity, and ease of evacuation. You know what I mean by that? It's pooping. But it will also support your gut barrier, skin health, heart health, and micronutrient synthesis. I, I got my uh, jar of seed right yep. here, folks. Although that does sound kind of dirty now that I think about it. It's funny, like my wife has been taking seed for over a year and she swears by it. And, you know, whatever. My, my wife is a very healthy person. I never really took it all that seriously. And then suddenly I get this jar of seed myself to try out. I've been taking it all week. And listen, man, I have been pooping. It's been great. Start a new healthy habit today. All you got to do is visit seed.com slash milkshake. You can use the code milkshake to redeem your 20% off. That's 20% off your first month of Seed's daily symbiotic. All you got to do again, go to seed.com slash milkshake and use the code milkshake. And uh, it's going to be great poops from here on out, folks. You know, the Buddhists, one of the, the central teaching of Buddhism is that life is suffering. Um, sure, one of the noble truths. And, you know, people in the East are, are generally much less sad than people four, in the West. Four to ten times less sad, which is weird. Oh, there's data? There's actual data. We, we have hard data, data have on hard it. Hard data. And, but but I, I think that we do ourselves a disservice in the Western world by uh, constantly trying to shuffle off sadness undermine it, soothe it, put band-aids on it, and uh, how much better off we would be as a society if, you know, our belief systems were that, listen, life is sad, life is suffering, the nature of being alive is attachment to things, and those attachments will never hold true, and you will lose them, and you will feel bereft, and that's part of the game. And then there are obviously Buddhist tools to use to overcome that particular type of sadness. But I think we'd, I think we'd be in much better shape. Well, there's that story about soldiers in the U.S. Army who were sent up to the North Pole, sent up to Alaska, somewhere very cold, where they had to perform functions and uh, in terrible, terrible, terrible cold. And there were the Inuit people there who were able to perform these functions with much, uh, much greater ease than our soldiers. And they ran some studies to determine why were the Inuits actually experiencing the cold less than our soldiers. And it turns out that no, they weren't. It's just that they accepted it. They just knew that it was a part of their lives and they could deal with it because it was just, it was just as plain as the nose in front of their faces. Whereas our soldiers, unaccustomed to it and, and having uh, come from a place that, that, that they didn't have this unremitting cold, 
couldn't handle the change. And I think that's true with what you're what you're describing. I think that's true with sadness. When when we when we try to shuffle it off, like you said, and we can't just sit with it, yeah, we're gonna experience it more acutely because we feel like there's something wrong with it. When there's not, it's just it's just what it is. Yeah. If you could snap your fingers. I can. It's not that hard. <laughs> All right. Wow. Well, thank okay. you, Michael Ian. So Black. thanks so much. Um... <laughs> What I meant to say was, if you could snap your fingers and just never feel sad again from here on out, would you do it? No, I don't think anybody would. I don't think anybody would. I'd be amazed if anybody would take that deal. Because, like you said at the beginning of the conversation, Rain, you you know that that would also kill your joy. You couldn't feel joy if you didn't feel its opposite. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Michael Ian Black, Killer of Joy. <laughs> We've got a lightning round of questions, okay? You can give us a, a, a brief first impression response. Number one, boom. Wait, 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 you ready? Hold on. But first, let me express some anxiety that I'm having uh, and worry. Uh-oh. Because this is, and this has been, a, this just goes back to what we were talking about. My worry in appearing on your podcast is, oh, gee, I wasn't. Uh, funny enough, and I had to give myself sort of permission years ago. This was sort of this whole process that I was talking about of not feeling the need to entertain and be funny in the way that necessarily people expect me to. So, like, I have to sit with that own like discomfort, uh, even when I'm even when I'm going through it. Let's just sit with Michael Ian Black's discomfort. Hey, oh, just God. between you and me, I was in the impression that he would be funny. <laughs> Didn't you think? I felt like that's what we signed I, up for. I thought he was going to be a lot funnier. Yeah, whatever. Don't don't tell him. He can't hear us, right? No, the, I have the mute button pressed. Right, that's good. Yeah, but I could hear you that whole. Wait, time. Wait oh, what? Shit. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, lightning, lightning round. round. When do you feel most connected with the universe? Uh, about four a.m. If I'm awake. What makes you laugh out loud? Uh, things my kids say. They, you know, kids, they say the darndest things. I've heard that. Yeah, I've heard that before. Describe your soul in 10 words or less. Okay, this is the lightning round. Uh, I'm going to go with, uh, uh, like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. How many words is that? It's 10. It's 11. I think it's 11, so I will just lay me is is all you can Uh, get. Okay, fine. And uh, what is your biggest fear? Um, uh, that, that I'm not good enough. What's one thing you know for sure? Uh, that I'm getting fatter. Yeah, I could tell. And then finally, what is your life's big question? The nice thing is, I feel like whatever big questions I had for my life have already been resolved. I, I, I'm, I'm fairly at peace, uh, with all the questions that I had, the sort of bigger questions that I had. The only question left really is, uh, on a daily basis, is what are we having for dinner? Hmm. Yeah. Which consumes a lot of my mental energy, by the way. I get it. We have kids. And you know what it is? You know what the answer is? Scrawd. Please tell me tacos. Oh, I knew it was going to be scrawd. I thought you were going to say sadness. Tears. (laughs) We're having tears for dinner. Just scrawd. Scrawd. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You're welcome. This has been a delight. In so many ways. You know, 
what I was thinking about, we've been talking about sadness for a while now, half an hour, 40 minutes. And it's it's really hard to define sadness, isn't it? It's, it's, does it feel broad? It feels kind of general? Is there a way that we can get more specific about discussing sadness? I mean, how do you define it? How do you, how do you dig into precisely what it means? And more importantly, separate it from depression. I mean, we don't want to... Right. There are people... Depression is a, is a mental illness. Yes. It's a psychological condition. It's serious. It that's requires therapy. It requires right. drugs. Like, that's a serious thing. That's not what we're talking about. And we got to separate it from loneliness because we already did an episode because on loneliness. we already did yeah, that. So let's not talk about but loneliness. Sad, we're talking about sadness. So sadness, I guess, is situational. But I Sometimes don't you feel sad without any situation? Like, everything is just fine and you just feel sad? Yes. That is absolutely true. Sometimes I think I just feel sad and I don't know why. Sometimes I kind of relish feeling sad. Do you ever do that? Do you ever like feel? Sure. Like there's some, I don't know. It's weird. You kind of want to hang on to it. It has a kind of a. You don't want to let it go. Yeah, a sentimental attachment to that. Yes. To that sadness. But you know, it's interesting. um, We got a list of words from our great producer, Amy Choi, uh, from other languages that describe very specific types of sadness, and they don't have an exact equivalent in English. And I thought this was really interesting. You know, like, what is it? The the Inuit have, like, 37 words for snow or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like, we only have one. Um, So it's good to kind of, like, define sadness a little more specifically. Here's a a language I've never heard called alutik. Alutik? Um, And uh, the word is... And it's, I am sad, and and that's the phrase, but it literally translates as, I am searching for my contents. Oh my God, I love that. I'm searching for my contents. So in Chinese, the word for sad, which I'm not going to butcher. No, you have to butcher it. Oh, for fucks. Okay, here we go. I apologize to all of my Chinese friends. Uh and that's that's literally translated as sad and happy intersecting. Ah, I've felt I, that, that before. Yeah. Have you, you know, felt that before? What, that, I think that's what we're talking yeah, about. When yeah, you want to yeah. relish your sadness. And in Czech, uh Krasosmnutnen uh, literally means beautiful sadness. Mm. German no one who knows anything about German will be surprised about the word for sadness in German, which is Welschmerz. 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 Because it literally translates as world pain. A deep existential sadness caused by the condition of the world, which I'm feeling a little bit right now because in French, there's a, I'm terrible at French, I can honestly speak, vague à la main literally translates as vague soul, a kind of gentle, wistful sadness. One more. Swedish. Vemod. I like this because it's basically what it means is melancholy, but with a layer of pensiveness and or nostalgia. Yep. So it's like pensive sad. All of this is to say that there are many, many different kinds of sadness and we feel it on multiple levels. It has deeper meanings. Some of it is the kind of sadness that you want to relish. Some of it is sadness that you want to get rid of. But the bottom line is, is that the sharing of sadness seems to work better when the vehicle of that sharing is humor. It's comedy. It's, mm, a, mm. it's a way of experiencing somebody else's sadness without it becoming maudlin. 
Milkshakers, listen, as you know, we love to get uh, listeners on the show. We love to hear about your life's biggest possible questions. I, I mean, love, really? I don't know if, uh, like, we like. We like to. I love it. I love it. I think, you know, we didn't start the show this way. We That's add true. this as an added component to the show. And and frankly, I, I love it. I don't want to just talk to authors and PhDs. I want to talk to the real people. I want to keep it real, you know? If it were up to me, it would just be two hours of me just talking. I, I am very, very aware of that. <laughs> I am very aware of that. So anyways, folks, um, if you're done, Reza, you can leave us. Uh, there's several ways to do that. Write into us on social media. Uh, this is uh, at Reza Aslan, at Rain Wilson, at Metaphysical Milkshake on Instagram, at Meta Milk Podcast on Twitter. And you can leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts with your life's big question. And we will pluck you from the thousands of positive glowing reviews and bring you on the show. And today we are thrilled to have someone with the unlikely name of Noah Della Pietro. Ooh. Hello, everybody. You know how there was this ancient debate between the ethos of Jerusalem and the ethos of Rome? Well, mm-hmm. Noah Della Pietro is balancing Jerusalem oh, and you're Rome. Right. There we go. And that yeah, conversation. So, Noah, what uh, what brings you to the show? You you got a question for us? What do you want to talk about? I, yeah, uh, this is something that's always been fascinating for me. And, um, you know, we all watch movies, TV all the time. And I think this question is something super relevant right now. So it's a little bit of a big one. But with the dissipation of cable, streaming services are like now becoming like fragmented packages of what cable originally was. So do you think we're going to continue to see media divided up by the platform? And if so, how would it affect society and culture when instead of a few media sources, there's just a bit, uh, a ton of like niche ones behind different paywalls? I've yeah. seen, you know, with Netflix kind of exploding the last few years, and um, now we're seeing all these other channels kind of have their own network. I've been curious to see kind of what's going to be the future of this. Uh, Noah, can I ask you a question? Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Los Angeles. Oh, you see, only, only <laughs> a guy calling from Los Angeles would a question about the dissipation of distribution platforms be an existential question? <laughs> Am I right, Rain? Went to school for, you know. 100%. 100%. Went to school for film, work in media. So, you know, it's something that's always on my mind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, look, uh, for, I, just, I feel like Rain and I, like, think and talk about stuff like this all the time, and I'm assuming most of our listeners do not. But, I mean, you all remember when there were like three channels, right? There was ABC, NBC, and there was CBS. Sure. And then you remember, mm-hmm. do you remember, Rain, when like there was suddenly Fox and we were all like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> four channels. Crazy. Insane. Yeah. And then there was this thing called Basic Cable. And like we all had like suddenly these weird channels where we were like, AMC and you can watch like you know old western movies like 24 7 remember that like and remember like that TNT. all of these channels like Bravo had like operas <laughs> yes um, I right? remember yeah. when Bravo was just like music yeah and uh, and VH1 was video hits one it was non-stop music videos uh-huh. so uh, and then we that- were remember but do you remember when we were like holy shit there's like 10 channels now yeah 
I mean, it's like 11 channels. There's so much. What am I going to watch? And then there's... Bruce Springsteen sang that song, 57 channels and there's nothing on. <laughs> yep. yep. <laughs> and now, I mean, you know, it's like, there's just too much. There's just well, way, to get, way to, too to, much. To try and get existential about it. I mean, I think that what we're seeing, I mean, this is talked about a lot in the news media, but this kind of like compartmentalization, siloization, where you can pick and choose where what your entertainment is and um, where you get your news, where you get your information, where you get your entertainment. So you can, you know, you can sit in a house in Los Angeles and just watch MSNBC and Sundance Channel artsy films mm-hmm. and... Uh, and then you can sit in a house in Oklahoma and you can watch Fox News and listen to Christian podcasts and uh, Miracle Network or whatever. I'm doing very broad generalizations here, but the the problem is, is there is so little shared culture anymore mm-hmm. that um, we are breaking up into these factions. So there's a lot of positive to it. You know, you can literally spend the time watching and consuming the content that you're actually interested in. Uh, but, uh, we as America has, have always used kind of like shared media to kind of unite us in a weird way. You know, it was Walter Cronkite, you know, bringing all of America together with his, you know, his sonorous Mm -hmm. tones as a newscaster, his trustworthiness, uh, which has now evaporated. So, you know, where does this go? You know, we have to find a different way to try and seek some kind of unity or we'll just fracture more and more. So, you know, is this a sign of the apocalypse, Reza? What do you think? Well, you know, it's fun because we did that. We did that amazing episode with Dave Kaplan. Yeah. Which Noah, you should definitely go back and listen to. Can TV save the world? And Dave Kaplan had this whole theory that made so much sense to me, which was, you know, the television is the new family hearth. Right, We used to have this thing before TV called the hearth in every house. And we would all, you know, families would gather around it. And it was kind of where the community was. And then, of course, he even goes further back in time. And he's like, you know, there was like the community hearth. Like the village would all get together and listen to the uh, the bard or the, or the shaman, you know, tell the great stories and myths uh, of the community, go all the way back to the cave, right? We would all gather around the fireplace and we'd all talk about the hunt that happened. But it was a way of creating precisely the the sense of communal identity that Rain was just talking about. Um, And then TV did that for a while, right? Yeah, Rain's right. Not just Walter Cronkite, but like the Jeffersons. Happy days. Like good Mm -hmm. times. We would all get together. We'd watch it at precisely 8.30, you know, on Thursday at the exact same time. Even Friends and Seinfeld. Even Friends and Seinfeld. And a little bit, The Office, when it began, was kind of the last, well, Modern Family, I think, was on after us, but it was kind of the last or one of the last kind of shared television-only cultural experience. Yeah, yeah. And then, but now that's gone, right? Now, first of all, we don't all watch TV anymore anywhere. We watch it on our phones. We watch it very much privately. We don't watch it as a family that much anymore. Like the idea that the I do YouTube way more than television, by the way, these days. Same with me. Yeah, Yeah, same with me. Absolutely. And so to your question, how will it affect society and culture? I think we're seeing that, 
right? We talk so much about how polarized and fractured we are as a country, and we talk about it as though it's because of politics. It ain't because of politics, and it's certainly, by the way, not because of opinions. It's funny because as much as we talk about how divided we are as a country, when you actually start polling people about their beliefs and their views, there's actually a lot of unanimity in yeah. the way that we think about you yeah. know, cultural and societal. Even Climate change, healthcare, education. Yeah. Yeah. It's unbelievable, right? Yeah. The political the parties would not want you to, to believe that, you know, but it's true. Yeah. So I think the issue here then is, um, is it just a reflection of a fractured society or is it creating the fracturing of society? And I'm definitely much more in the latter category, you know, I think because we're not in some of, in a lot of our views, especially with the really big stuff, we're not all that far apart, but because we don't ever have to connect with each other anymore because there isn't a, a shared space where we all go to and then we can all have a conversation about, you know, what we all experience with the, with the possible exception of like the Super Bowl, <laughs> you know, um, it's, it is definitely promoting the, this sort of fracturing of this kind of larger collective identity that we used to have, but I don't, I don't really see it changing. I don't know. Not- Noah, what do you think? I don't know. I mean, when you guys were mentioning about like old shows, everyone kind of coming together, watching that, I'm just thinking of like, <laughs> I was in the pool of missing out, but I didn't watch Game of Thrones when it was on, but I know everybody that I knew was watching it. And anytime I'd hop on Twitter or any social media, you know, I'd see people all coming together like, oh, did you watch that new episode or whatever? And I mean, what I see nowadays, I guess, with different television shows, it's where I, where I was kind of getting at where it feels a lot more niche because, for example, there's this new uh, animated cartoon on Adult Swim that a lot of people are watching. There's ads for it all around LA. And um, I, uh, it, it wasn't on HBO Max. And it, originally it was just on Adult Swim. Like you had to pay, obviously, to watch it. Um, I watched it. It was a few, a few people I knew watched it, but now that it's on HBO max, I'm seeing it all over TikTok. I'm seeing it all over YouTube, like little clips and all that. And it's interesting because it's, it's, you, you know, that it's getting bigger because of the people that have HBO max that are watching it through that. So I don't know. It's, it is interesting. Like now hearing your guys, what you guys have to say, like in some cases, it's bringing a lot of people together with these different services because it's different communities, I guess, and different, like, certain shows are on certain networks, certain shows are on certain like platforms. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's bringing people together in like smaller ways, I guess. But then I guess where I'm coming from at the same time, it might be separating people because if someone can't afford HBO max or Showtime or something like, you know, it's like, damn it, I'm missing out or something, you know, no one watches Showtime, dude. Yeah. (laughs) My dad does, but you know, (laughs) also these platforms are global platforms, right? Yeah. So you think about Netflix, squid games. um, Yeah. I mean, <laughs> people watching watch it in games. Iceland and Mongolia and exactly. Chile. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. that sort of connects you in this weird way that like something on CBS could never connect you. Um, For sure. You know, but, but I do think that it, it, is, a, it is really uh, indicative of the way, you know, we, we complain so much about the internet creating these bubbles, right? That the idea was like, I mean, I remember <laughs> when the internet began to be a thing and 
people like me were like, this is amazing. We are going to have access to new sources of knowledge and information. It's going to create a global community instead of these different, you know, communities that are, you know, geographically contained. Uh, yeah. No. So sweet. So sweet. Well, wasn't it? Yeah, we had the idea like, oh, all the information is going to be out there. So if someone has a question about vaccines, they can <laughs> yeah. Google it. They can, you know, ask they could do their own it, research. And they can do their own research and look at the data. And they won't just listen to their Uncle Stan. They'll really dive into the science of it. Oh, oh no. Man. Well. Man, oh, man. Well, Those you were, were, you were a, of a younger generation than us, Noah, and especially of me. Mm -hmm. So we're counting on you to uh, lead the way forward in this uh, fractured world and fractured media landscape uh, to do something that unites us and binds us toward a commonality of helping the poorest and the most destitute among us and leading humanity forward. What do you say? Save us, Noah. Save yes, us. I will, uh, You're our only I hope. Will, I will do it. Yeah, I will do it. I will try my best. All right. Thanks for coming on, folks. Uh, yeah. Leave your life's big questions on the Apple Podcast Review or write us on social media. You can find us. Just Google it. You'll figure it out. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for coming on, Noah. Metaphysical Milkshake is executive produced by Rain Wilson, Reza Aslan, and Colin Thompson. It's produced by Safa Samizadeh Yazd, Harris Lane, Mick DeMaria, Hashem Self, and DJ Lubel. Cast Media is the production and distribution partner. It is edited by Tyler Newbold and audio mixed by Joshua Harris. Original music is composed by Jeff Tang. It was produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lehrer of the Mashup Americans. Associate producers are Jocelyn Gonzalez, Lindsay Cradowell, Sarah Pellegrini, Mary Phillips Sandy, and Shelby Sandlin. I love the 80s and they 90s. They should have the, uh, I love the 1870s. They're not, Funny I'll, I'll be on that. Funny you know, stuff, like, yeah. I love those big wheeled bicycles. Oh, look at this guy oh, riding I'm, around. I'm writing this down. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Yeah.